Hey everybody, like Pastor Johnny Reeves said, welcome to worship today, our version of it live stream. I just want to give a shout out uh, to these heroes that have jumped in at risk of themselves to make this happen. Worship team, thank you so much. And Leland and Amy back in Mission Control, we really appreciate you jumping in. I have a funny feeling your mansions are going to be really big in heaven, so invite me over. Hey, we're going to be in Nehemiah today. Uh, we're walking through that series together. Uh, last week, we learned as we walked through the first chapter chapter in Nehemiah that God calls us to take full responsibility of our future. And one of the ways that we do that is through patient prayer. But is that it? Is that enough? Is taking responsibility for our future just prayer? And we stop there. Well, no. As we walk through this text today, we're going to see that prayer will lead us to action and a certain type of action. We have a tendency to separate the spiritual and the physical. So prayer becomes a spiritual discipline and how we live is just how we live. This text in chapter two today, we're gonna to use all of chapter two in Nehemiah, shows us that no, this patient prayer actually leads us to action. And what we will notice and what we saw in the first chapter is that Nehemiah just doesn't act. He just doesn't pray. He is motivated. All his prayer and action is undergirded by his core conviction. He fears the Lord above everything. He lives for his glory. His purpose in life is crystal clear. Even though it brings opposition, it probably brings doubt. And as we'll see today, it brings fear and sadness. But he knows why he is alive. He is clear on his purpose. He understands his why. Have you ever had anybody ask you that? What's your why? Well, Nehemiah understands that. So we will walk through this today looking at how this idea of knowing God intimately and living for his glory moves prayer into action. Friends, I know that as you understand or you try to seek, hey, what's my purpose in life or what's my why? Culture has discipled you and I to find our purpose by doing a deep dive internally into our own emotions. But let me tell you this, scripture is very clear. You cannot feel your way into a new way of acting or living. You can't do it. You're looking in the wrong place. That's like standing in this building or in your home and saying, oh, we know it's snowing today. We're going to look for snow here. No, you got to go outside. Same thing with your why or your purpose in life. You have got to look outside yourself, very specifically to your creator king, God. If he doesn't define what your purpose is, you will spend your life wasted. So Nehemiah knows this. You can't feel your way into a new way of acting. But in worship, when worship is our why, we can act in obedience and in trust, and that opens up new ways for experiencing God, for feeling God, if you will. Uh, Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche, old German philosopher, he was famous, one of the famous things he said is, he who has a why can endure any how. Well, that's true in general, which is ironic because he also taught that life is meaningless, but it is not if your why is worship, if you know the living God. So think through that. Um, think through that, because here's what Nehemiah experiences right off the bat. His primary emotions are deep sadness that goes on for a long time and fear. That's there. So even though he fears God above everything, choosing to live in worship means 
seeing God walk him through that fear and through that sadness so he can act. That's what God is calling us to do. So quick review. Uh, we learned that Nehemiah uh, is is in Susa, it's in modern-day western Iran, and we know that just as Jeremiah had prophesied, Israel had gone into captivity there, but then also as Jeremiah had prophesied, they would be coming back. And the first wave had already come back with Zerubbabel, and the, the temple had been rebuilt or restructured. We know that about 70 to 80 years later, Ezra comes back, uh, and he establishes, tries to rebuild the community and also the wall. That gets put on pause. And about 14 years later, this is the third wave of exiles, or like a second exodus, coming out of the Persian kingdom, making the 800-mile trek back into Jerusalem to establish it. So that's where we are. And they're building their expectations. Nehemiah is teaching them to build their expectations on God's promise. So before we jump in, I want to share a poem with you that just really identifies what this text is going to call us to do. I didn't write it. It was written by one of my spiritual mentors, uh, Pastor Steve King. I modulated a little bit, probably ruined it. But we're just going to put it up on the screen because it's a good way to understand this text, what prayer that, that moves into action looks like. And it says this. It says, planning without prayer is presumptuous. We do that all the time. We're type A people. We will plan and then just try to baptize those plans with prayer and wonder why God isn't moving. So that's presumptuous. But then it goes on. It says prayer without planning is passivity. So if we're just going to step into prayer and wait for heaven to come to us, wait for God to move before we even take one step of obedience, Scripture's going to call that passivity. What we see today is that prayer plus planning is powerful. It leads us to action. It doesn't negate God's sovereignty, but it doesn't use God's sovereignty as an excuse for passivity either. So let's walk through this text together. Would you pray with me? And then we will just let this text narrate itself. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, that you have given us everything that we need today to live for your glory, to experience salvation in Christ our Lord. So we ask, as we open up Nehemiah chapter 2, that you would open it up for us, that we might behold its beauty and its treasure and your glory. And we lift this up in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, yes, patient prayer, but that will always lead you to action, especially when you know what your why is, when you know that you live for God's glory alone. And the way that Nehemiah might put it in chapter 2 is, you live to be in the hand of God. Right? You have given your life to him. So there's three movements in this text in chapter 2. We see that Nehemiah is before the king, which is where his fear and sadness comes from. And then we see Nehemiah before the wall, where he's, he's taking the plan and the picture of the future that he has, and he's executing it. And then we see Nehemiah before the people at large and how he motivates them to jump into God's story. So let's read. We'll be in chapter 2, verses, well, we'll just read the first movement, basically through verse 8. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. 
Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? There is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Friends, right off the bat, you must see that Nehemiah's why, or his reason for living, his purpose, goes beyond not being sad. If Nehemiah wanted to live a life that was devoid of fear and sadness, it would have been better for him, follow me, to stay in Susa, in a wealthy city that was the world power and remained the cupbearer of the king. It was a great job. He was a sommelier. He was there to protect the king as well. He was one of the most trusted people in the kingdom. But the fact that he let God burden his heart to go back to rebuild, not to rebuild Jerusalem, to really reestablish the wall and see the community of God living out their purpose because God put that burden on his heart and he received that, it brings him sadness because that is not happening presently in Jerusalem. The ways of exiles that have gone back have not really taken hold. And it puts a burden on his heart and he's sad. And it brings fear, because if he's going to have this conversation with the king, uh, honestly, he could, he could be killed. Now remember, this is four months later. He spent about four months of praying patiently, and God opens this door for him, and Nehemiah boldly takes it, but he is overwhelmed by fear. So just side note, if our why or if our reason for living is just to be happy, it, you can't really follow God like this. Right? God gives us sadness sometimes when we just realize how different the world is or even our world from what we know it should be. But know this, God gives us something to exercise sadness. It's called lament. It's all over the Bible. And as Christians, we need to understand that. That lament cannot fall in on ourselves. That sadness is not meant to just marinate inside, but to go up like we see the psalmist. Bring this sadness to the Lord. And that's probably, in one respect, how Nehemiah spent some of those four months of prayer. So it gives expression to sadness, and it's not wasted time. His four months were not wasted. So God opens this door. The king sees that Nehemiah is sad. Now, that's dangerous. Why? Well, if you walk in to have surgery, and your surgeon is kind of distracted by sadness, how would you feel about that? You wouldn't like it. Same thing here. This is the most trusted man in the kingdom. You do not want your cup bearer sad. If, there's, if he's sad, there's a reason for it. And in many, reasons, in many ways, it could be sedition or treason. You don't want him distracted from protecting the king's food and protecting the king's kingdom. So he very much knows, Nehemiah is not stupid, so he knows that if this sadness breaks through and the king sees it, it could mean the end of his job or it could mean the end of his life. So have you ever had one of those conversations where you feel like your whole life boils down to this one moment? Maybe it's a job interview. Maybe it's a conversation with a spouse. Uh, you just feel the weight of it. 
You've been thinking about it for weeks, maybe even walking around it, not wanting to have that conversation. That's exactly where Nehemiah is. But note this, his prayer is leading him to action. He's trusting in the sovereign hand of God. And as God opens the door up here, he walks through it. And he doesn't walk through it timidly. With wisdom, yes, but not timidly. So what is his response to the king? First of all, he gives him a clear picture of the future. He says, I want to go back to rebuild the city of my fathers. Now he's wise, he doesn't say Jerusalem. Why doesn't he say Jerusalem? Probably because it's occupied territory. Several years over, a little over a decade earlier when Ezra was in Jerusalem, Artaxerxes put a stop to the building of the wall. So. It, it's, it could be seen as treason. So he keeps the word Jerusalem out of it for now, but he tells the king, I want to rebuild the city of my fathers, where my fathers are buried. He's not tiptoeing around it. He has a clear picture of the future. Prayer will lead you to that. It will lead you to a clear picture of what should be. And then we have the choice to act on it. And then he moves on from there. And the king said to me, this is in verse 6, and the queen sitting beside him. Actually, let me back up. Let me go back to verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So right there, you see God's hand was moving. He's giving him permission. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and let a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. He even needs, he even wants to have his house rebuilt there so he can oversee it. And the king granted to me what I asked and what's Nehemiah's conclusion, which is kind of the thesis of this section, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So Nehemiah does not dance around. And he very well knows that if he missteps, he could lose his life. But he trusts in God. He, trusts, he hands the outcome to God and surrenders that to God. and says, I want to rebuild Jerusalem. How long will he be gone? That's a good sign. The king likes him, right? He doesn't want him to be gone forever. He's a good worker. He's trustworthy. And Nehemiah lays it out. I need passage. I need safe passage to get there. I need resources to rebuild it. I need my own house there rebuilt so I can oversee it. He has a plan. He doesn't just have an idea what the future should look like. He has systematically and critically thought through what he needs to accomplish the thing that God has laid on his heart. And he knows this. He knows Proverbs 21.1 that says, the heart of the king is like a stream in God's hand, and God directs it wherever he wills. 
So he was willing to put the surrender, the outcome of this conversation to God alone and be very clear about what God is calling him to do. His prayer led him to action. Friends, before we go any further in this text and see how this action works out, because it works out both great and horrible at the same time, can you do that? Can you set aside your fear and your sadness for long enough to take action in the places God is calling you to take action in clear ways? Loving one another, serving one another, just doing your job well. Can you do that? Or is your fear of circumstances directing your life? Because honestly, Nehemiah was risking almost too much here. So prayer will lead you to action every single time. So let's see how Nehemiah takes action here. We'll walk right into verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, so he's getting in to the Jerusalem area, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sambalat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite served, servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night into the valley gate, to the dungeon spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate, into the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. There was just too much rubble. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, and the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So we see right off the bat that Nehemiah's obedience to God when prayer leads him to action, which in the beginning is a clear picture of the future and a plan to execute, when he actually starts working that plan, he immediately experiences opposition. So how does he handle that opposition? Note this, he's made an 800 mile trek from Susa to Jerusalem. The king actually gave him more than he asked. He goes with an armed escort. He goes with not just the permission of the king of Persia, but also his power. And as he walks into the region and starts handing the papers, there's a buzz. Two people right off the bat who are very well connected don't like it. One is Sanballat. He's well connected. He's probably Jewish in heritage, but he's up north in Samaria probably up towards Horon. And then you have Tobiah. He would be more towards Jordan, across the Jordan in Ammon. So he's kind of taking up the eastern region. Both would have been probably sanctioned by Persia. They're well connected. We know from the text that they have, their families have intermarried with the high priest. So they're socially connected. They've been there before. They have the blessing of Persia, and they are religiously connected to the power structures of Israel. So when 
Nehemiah shows up, he has instant opposition. They don't like it. So how does Nehemiah respond to that? I know how I'd responded with that. I wouldn't have gone out at night. I'd have showed up in the day, and I would have gathered the entire armed escort that I had and my passports from the king, and I would have rode up on them and said, hey, just so you know, I'm basically the governor here now, and we're going to do what we want because God has put his hand on this project. That's what we do, friends. Um, we either run away in fear and don't even take the risk, or we come in and we just assume that because God gave us a vision and God gave us and opened some doors, we can run over people. He's super wise in this. Here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't confront them with an armed escort. Uh, he doesn't even say a word. Can you believe that? Could you imagine in this day and age, when you have a conviction, what do you do? If you see somebody on Facebook that has an opposite conviction, you just blurb, don't you? You assume that because you have a conviction, uh, you just got to get it out there. I mean, Pro Proverbs talks to this. A fool gives full vent to his mind. But a wise man holds back. So note this, Nehemiah holds back. He takes a moment. Why? He doesn't want to curate other people's opinions. Now his brother had told him that the gate was ruined and the gates were burned and the wall was down. He goes and check, but he goes and checks it out himself. He takes a survey with his posse before he draws any attention to himself. Friends, that is humility. And that is trusting in the Lord, but he wants to inspect and verify what's there before he makes a move. And he held his tongue. Are you the first to speak? Do you feel like your experience and your opinions, maybe even your age, require that you're the first to speak? Because your opinion is better than everybody else. That's just arrogance. And it's bad leadership. So check that. Check that. Nehemiah holds his tongue. He watches, he inspects, he knows what he's dealing with as a leader before he asks anybody to join him or before he confronts those who are not happy that he's there. And he can't control any of that. But he keeps his mouth shut. It's amazing. Uh, so prayer is going to lead you to action, but humble, wise action. I can't read this text where Nehemiah is basically going out at night with a small posse to inspect the project that God has laid on his heart without thinking of Jesus in Mark 11. Do you remember that? It's Passion Week. So he has just rode into Jerusalem, not on a horse, even like Nehemiah did, but on a colt, right? Uh, and so he comes in. They think he's the, the, the Christ will be a political figure, so they're misunderstanding who he is. But later that night, we see in Mark 11, I'm just going to read it to you. Mark 11, 11, it says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So you also see Nehemiah give us a shadow of what Jesus does. He comes in, he takes a survey in the temple, and he rolls out knowing this is going to be the week where that opposition leads him to death. And if we go a little further in Mark, we see that he just doesn't survey in silence. He ends up speaking and 
confronting himself, the religious leaders, and telling them that this temple is going to come down, speaking of his own body, and I will rebuild it in three days. So he didn't, unlike Nehemiah, he doesn't go into Jerusalem to reestablish and refortify the temple. He goes in to actually tear it down in his own body. He goes down to not rebuild it, but to replace it with himself. And Nehemiah is a small shadow or a picture of that so that Jesus does this, that we might become the temple of God, that we might actually be in God's hand fully. So prayer leads this to action. So see this, friends. There's a lot of opposition here, but God's good hand, and Nehemiah knows this, God's good and gracious hand is working good even in his people right there. And as you'll see as we go through this chapter, he's working good. I mean, here's some good that came out of it. God's people were preserved and the Messiah came from them a few hundred years later. You never know how God is going to use you. You never know that. So prayer leads to action. And lastly, we see Nehemiah go before the wall. I mean, go before the people. So he does speak, just like Jesus eventually does speak. Verse 17, Then I said to them, all that had gathered, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, they said, let us rise up and build. Notice, this is what the people say. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat and the Horonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us. Here comes a criticism. And despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? You are rebelling against the king. That was going to be their angle, which is ironic because Nehemiah is the only one that's not actually rebelling against either the Persian king or the true king, God himself. Then I replied to them, See, Nehemiah does speak. The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we are his servants, and we will rise and build, but you have no portion or right claim in Jerusalem. A few things I want you to see on how Nehemiah handles this before the people. First, he shows them what he sees. Remember, Nehemiah has a clear picture of the future. He has a plan. It's not unspiritual to plan. Yes, the Holy Spirit can actually work through the planning process. And sometimes your plans changed because God moves you that way. But he understands that, and he takes it before the people, and he says, let me show you what I see. I see a Jerusalem that's ruined. I see walls that are down. And these broken walls mean broken people, broken promises to fear God alone. We've built our own houses before we've raised and brought up the house of God, and it's a broken leadership. And Nehemiah shows them that. Now, they, they knew that the wall was broken down, but he says, you see the trouble we are in. So he sets a new lens for them and says, this is showing that we don't fear God. We don't trust God. He's not valuable to us. He shows them that. And he says, let us build it. Hmm. And the next thing that he does is brilliant. Instead of saying, God, lay this on my heart, and we're going to do it, and you're going to help me, 
He says, let me show you how the hand of God has moved. Let me tell you how fearful I was. Let me tell you the sadness that overwhelmed me. Let me tell you that in the moment I prayed to God before the king to have mercy and that he would give me success. And let me tell you the hand of God, just like scripture teaches us, was on the hand of the king and he moved and he sent me here with resources and with passage and with authority and with power because this is what God is doing. God has opened the door for us to do this. And then he stops. And their response to seeing the glory of God and to see their response to seeing God move is to say this, let us rise up and build. Let us strengthen our hands and join in the work that God has put before us. So he empowers them. He says, this is our why. We are to partner in the glory of God of God, let us rise up and build. Friends, if you're seeing a lack of what you would call miraculous power in your life, do not be deceived. Do not be duped into believing just because you don't see things folding out the way you want that God is not active in your life. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Don't assume just because you don't see miracles in Nehemiah that God isn't working his plan through his people. And this can be true in your life. We're in a season of fear and sadness, just like Nehemiah was. So how are you responding? What's your why? Are you willing to worship God and put your life in his hand completely? Are you willing to trust that Jesus went in to be torn down, that you might actually, like Peter says, be a living stone built into the temple of God, that God himself through the spirit of God would take up residence in your life and he would teach you over and over what it means to live for his glory and to experience his joy. This is what Nehemiah is teaching. This is what he's learning, honestly. This prayer leads to action for him. And it's not careless action. It's not just responsive. He prays, he's patient, he has a picture of the future, he makes a plan, he executes it in humility and wisdom. He lets the outcome belong to God, but he moves on it and he empowers the people around him. Are you willing to show the people in your life and around you that the glory of the living God? Because we are that temple in Christ. He lives here. He lives here. So yes, prayer leads to action. Where are you on that? Planning without prayer, yes, is presumptuous. But prayer without planning is passivity. It's not an excuse either. Our call is patient prayer, planning, action, and trusting God for the outcome. This is the prayer that leads to action. Join me in that. Where would God have you enter into his work? In your community, in your church? Where is he calling you to? Maybe you just need to surrender your life to him. Maybe that's where you need to start. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you've given us a beautiful text, a narrative of trembling courage that Nehemiah uses as he trusts you, Lord. And as he takes action, both in humble and patient prayer, both in walking through the doors that you've opened up to him, both in wisdom as he executes his plan in humility, but in, in your strength and in empowering those around him to also join him in living for your glory and placing their lives in your hands. That's our prayer. We want to see that. We want to be used by that. We want to, to be a part of all that you're doing. And we lift this up in the name of Jesus.